0: Welcome to Episode 10 of the Via Emmaus Podcast, where we'll be discussing the Old Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Today we will look at Exodus 12-18, through and we will begin our time by looking at one of the most important parts of Exodus, the Passover. In Exodus 12, we learn about the Lord's Passover, where the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, will be judged under the hand of God. What does this event teach us about God in the book of Exodus?
1: Yeah, if you remember, um, the whole book is given to us to reveal to us who God is. Right? We talked about this last time, where everything that He's doing it is to reveal His name, it's right. to reveal His character. Uh, really, it's to reveal what He's going to do uh, in salvation. Exodus becomes the pattern of salvation for uh, God's people. Uh, More particularly, one of the things that we see is the way that Exodus 12 and the Passover is saving the firstborn uh, of the people of Israel. And this goes back to Exodus chapter 4. Uh, So one of the things we learn is just the way that God uh, keeps his promises. Exodus 4 verse 22 uh, says, "Uh, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Right. right? So again, Exodus is just the competition of the firstborn sons. And here, we see how God is fulfilling the promises that he has made to the people of Israel. And even the warnings that he's given to uh, Pharaoh at this time. Another thing we learn is that God requires blood. Right. The way in which the firstborn son is going to be saved is through the sacrificial lamb, the substitute that is going to be killed in the place of the firstborn. The blood will be applied to the doors and the people of God then um, take shelter behind the blood uh, in order uh, to be able to be saved uh, from the death angel that will be coming uh, there over the land. Um, The lamb is a substitute for the firstborn uh, and the one who will inherit the promises. Right, so it's interesting how this even goes back to like a Genesis 22. Genesis 22 speaks of Isaac as the firstborn of the beloved son of Abraham, and yet uh, God is going to require his life uh, because of his sin. Right. Right. Throughout Genesis 12 through 22, sin is not a big factor there. But if the promises are going to come to the people of God, there must be a provision that is made. And so, what does God do? He provides a ram caught in the thicket to stand in the place and to die in the place of the beloved son. And in so many ways, the story of the Exodus now is the story of Abraham and Isaac writ large, right? That now we see how God is going to save the firstborn, the people of Israel, through means of this Passover lamb. Uh, And in doing that, it prepares or it creates a pattern in Israel of how God redeems his firstborn son. Something even prepares us as we go into the rest of the Bible.
0: Let's take a look at Exodus 37 and 38. This is when the Jews were leaving Egypt. And the verses read... And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herd. Um, Verse 38 speaks of a mixed multitude. Does this mean that there were some people that were not traditional Israelites among the Jews when they left Egypt?
1: Yeah, I often wonder um, what people think makes Israel... Israel. right, And in the Bible, Israel is not marked out by ethnicity only, but by the circumcision, by the mm-hmm. covenant that they are a part of. So Ishmael, for instance, was a physical son of Abraham, but he was not a part of God's um, covenant of promise. He had the mark of circumcision. We saw that back in Genesis 17, uh, but he was not a son of promise. That came through Isaac and then uh, Isaac's son uh, Jacob and so forth. So here, the people of Israel are joined by people from Egypt uh, who recognize the God of Israel. Through the Mm -hmm. plagues and through the powers of God, they recognize that the one true God of Israel is the God that they should worship, and so they leave behind their false gods uh, there are a multitude of gods in Egypt to join the people of Israel. Right. And it seems as though along the way they must have become circumcised to join in with the people. Mm-hmm. Right? And you mentioned uh, Exodus 12, verse 43 and following. We should read that because this really helps us understand who the people of Israel are. In such a way we could say the people of Israel are the people that celebrate the Passover. Right? They are the people who were brought out by God through the Passover through the Red Sea. And this is what it says in Exodus twelve forty three. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you <clears throat> and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you." So, first of all, as they are preparing for the Passover, God basically stops them and says, okay, this is how you will celebrate in the future. Right. Remember hearing this illustrated once before. It's like. Imagine that your house is burning down, right, and you gather your family in the living room to say, all right, this is how we're going to celebrate in the future our <laughs> right. house burning down, right? Yeah. So they, like, I mean, they're trying to flee out of the country, yeah. uh, and yet he stops them to be able to instruct them, because this event is not just for them at that moment, but it's for the generations that are to come. Right? And one of the things that he teaches is that there are those outside of Israel who can come inside of Israel through circumcision, through celebrating the Passover, to become a people of the covenant. Mm. Right? So he uses this language of foreigner versus those who are native, but it seems as though that the stranger or the foreigner can become a native by means of circumcision. Which again, we see that played out in places like Acts 15, right. when the church, filled with Jews, comprised of Jews at the beginning of the church, asks the question, do Gentiles have to be circumcised as well? in the old testament they did right but now the circumcision in the new covenant is of the heart done by christ through the spirit uh, and not through the flesh in this way but i think what we see then is that from the very beginning the people of god are not just one pure uh, racial people one pure ethnic people it is a people of the covenant right right? and there was an invitation for the nations to come and be a part of that covenant
0: yeah so I, i always thought it was specifically um, a people like an ethnicity. but uh, you know as I read the Bible now, as we're going through this study, um, you c- I can clearly see that that is not the case. Not only here but even in the New Testament, um, mm-hmm. just really all throughout the Bible, you can see that uh, salvation was not designed for a specific eth- ethnicity.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, think about the promise made in Genesis 12, right through you Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed.
0: That's right, yeah. God's
1: plan was always to bring salvation to all the nations. Right. Right. And I think, you know, rightly, we should see the focus in the Old Testament on Israel, but wrongly, if we read the whole Bible as Israel centered, mm-hmm. we're missing it. Right, right, yeah. It is always Christ centered. God's purpose for Israel was to bring his one son, Jesus, so that he could bring salvation to all nations.
0: Right, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So i got to ask about Exodus 13, verses 1 and 2, which read, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Why did God ask Moses to consecrate or sanctify the firstborn unto him? What does this mean?
1: Yeah, so we talked just a moment ago about the importance of firstborns Mm -hmm. uh, in the book of Exodus firstborn is huge in the entirety of the Bible, Mm. right? We don't understand even the blessings that we have in Christ unless we understand how the firstborn was the one who was given the inheritance, Mm -hmm. right? They are the ones who are called to be um, the priests before the law was given, right? Even here, uh, we're going to see that they are consecrated in this way that they are redeemed in this Passover so that they can serve the Lord again. One of the big picture ideas of Exodus is a people who were enslaved to Pharaoh, who would be redeemed by God, so they could come and be servants in the household of God. Right. Right. So there's never a place in the Bible that speaks of, okay, we were enslaved to sin and now we are set free entirely. But rather, we're enslaved to sin and now we're slaves of God. We're mm-hmm. slaves of righteousness. Right. We are um, servants in His household. Like that's good news for us. That in that way we are protected and housed with Him in His place, uh, and of course, as the Bible says, not just as slaves but as sons, mm-hmm. right? So I think again, just to unpack this a little bit further, in the Old Testament, all the blessings go to the firstborn. I remember Jacob and Esau. Esau came out first; he had the birthright, right? But then Jacob receives that, receives that in a um, duplicitous and deceitful way. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it was a big deal when Esau forsook his birthright, uh, and Jacob picks it up and runs with it forward. Or, you can think of Joseph. He had major problems when Ephraim, the younger brother, received the greater blessing over Manasseh, Mm -hmm. who was the older brother. Now, here again, we can see a focus on the firstborn, and again, this matches the historical data that we see uh, in the Passover. But the Passover also has kind of a logic to it. And that is to say that the firstborn is redeemed so they can serve the Lord. And what we'll see when we come to Exodus 19 is that this firstborn son actually becomes a kingdom of priests. Mm. Right. So when Adam was made, he was made in the image of God to be a son of God with the roles of being a king and a priest. Then because of sin, that was just scattered and lost. Even in the law, we're going to see that kingship and priesthood are separated. But it's always been God's intention that the image of God, the sons and daughters of God, would be royal priests. Right. And so here, this idea of being consecrated, I think, carries the idea that the firstborn sons in Israel were to be these priests serving their brothers. Of course, the firstborn sons uh, fail in their priesthood because the golden calf is something that happens where they lose that. And now the Levites are faithful to God, and the Levites are the ones who become the priests in the history of Israel. Right. But when Jesus comes, this language is picked up. He doesn't need to be redeemed by the Levites. Rather, He is consecrated and put forward as a true son, a true priest, and a true king. Yep. And through His redemption, He's going to make all those who are in His family firstborn sons, kings, and priests.
0: Yep. In the New Testament, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples on the night of his Last Supper. What is similar and what is different between the Passover and the Lord's Supper?
1: Yeah, so I think it's so important for us to understand um, the way that this plan for the Passover is going to be fulfilled in Christ. Again, all that we see in Exodus is a shadow of the substance of Christ. right? right. So one of the things that happens on the cross is that Jesus, um, his bones are not broken. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that, John tells us, uh, is fulfillment of the Passover. The Passover lamb could not have the bones broken, right? Why is that? Well, it could just be an arbitrary thing or, It could be that God, in that, is preparing the way for His Son. So that when the Son, Jesus Christ, has died on the cross, and the other um, crucified men on both sides have their legs broken, as often was the case, His are not. Right. right? Because God is preparing the way for Him. So we just need to see that relationship. Another thing we can see is that both are covenant meals, right? The Passover as well as the Lord's Supper are covenant meals. Both are for those who are circumcised. We just Mm -hmm. saw that in Exodus 12 and both include the children of God, right? But the Passover is the type, the Lord's Supper is the anti-type, it is the real deal. So, the Passover is a meal where lambs are sacrificed and they would do that every single year, right? The circumcision was physical and the children were also physical, those offspring in the flesh. Mm -hmm. The Lord's Supper, by contrast, remembers the completed work of Christ that is not making a sacrifice again and again, The bread doesn't become the body of Jesus. The cup doesn't become the blood of Jesus. These are symbols reminding us of what Christ has done and His once-for-all sacrifice. The Lord's Supper also is for those who are circumcised, but not in the flesh, but those who are circumcised in in the heart, Right. right? So they evidence that with faith, so that now it is believers who have identified themselves with Christ, I would say even who have identified themselves with Christ through baptism, who are now entered into this covenant relationship with Jesus publicly to receive this meal. And then also, it is for the children of God. Right. Right? But not children of the flesh, but children of the Spirit. Right? So, this is just a practical application for us today. I think sometimes well meaning Christian parents can want to give the, the elements to their children, even though they haven't made a profession of faith yet. They right. think that they're including them in the things of God. But actually, they're giving a confused message, Mm -hmm. right? The Lord's Supper is for those who have publicly identified themselves with Jesus. The way that Jesus teaches us to publicly identify ourselves with him is through baptism. So in other words, we can say that the Lord's Supper is for those who have been marked out by baptism and are invited to the table. Mm -hmm. It sort of reminds me of what's going to happen later when Israel goes through the waters Into the land flowing with milk and honey. Right. Right. As they're brought back into a land that is made to be portrayed as the land of Eden, they're going through water in order to feast on the food that God is preparing. Mm. Right. That imagery in the Old Testament is not accidental. And in fact, it prepares the way for us to understand our own relationship with God, the way that we are saved by His Spirit, by the work of Christ, but then we're publicly identified by going through the water. And eating at the table
0: In Exodus 13:17 it says that God did not lead the people through way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. I have two questions. why didn't God lead them on a shorter path?
1: Yeah does God ever lead us on a yeah. shorter path? <laughs> we always want him to do that, and yet God in his goodness and his wisdom often leads us on the long path
0: mm-hmm.
1: And I think the whole point Uh, of Exodus, uh, again, is to glorify God. Yep, that's
0: where I was going. That includes
1: bringing the people through the Red Sea. Right. Right, so again, God delivers them out of Egypt through the sacrifice of the lambs. Pharaoh basically ejecting them from the land. They go out, but God's not done. Uh, He's also going to show his glory and show his power by destroying the wicked Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. He's going to bring his people to the point of uh, just absolute uh, desperation. As they come to the waters and they see Pharaoh and his army coming through on the land and there's no place for them to go, right? And so God opens a pathway in the sea, something never heard of before, something never done after. He brings them through the waters and as he does that, he displays his power and his glory, and really he creates faith in the heart of his people in the fact that he has done this on their behalf. And the praise that is on the other side in Exodus fifteen, I mean, it rings to the heavens right. because of uh, of this. And maybe just the other piece of this too, I mean God's just doing all these things to reveal himself, is that our salvation comes by both the sacrifice of the Lamb and the defeat of the enemy. Right? There is both Penal justice or penal substitution and a victory that is won in the cross, what Christ has done. We see that here, right? That the firstborn sons are saved by the sacrifice and the people of Israel are saved by God's defeating of the enemies to give them deliverance.
0: Right. So do we know where God led the people?
1: Yeah, so if you look at the map, Mm -hmm. right? You have the Sinai Peninsula. And you have the Red Sea going to the left of it and going to the right. So there are two branches of the Red Sea. And there's there's a lot of debate on this, right? Liberal scholars want to say, look, clearly there wasn't a pathway opened up in the deep, deep ocean, Mm -hmm. right? He went through something known as the Sea of Reeds, right? Where there were wind that was blowing away and they're able to go through that. That's not what the text says. Right, yeah. right? If we're going to, one, believe that God created the heavens and the earth, that he has power to do all of these things, there's no reason we have any problem to believe that he could part away in the sea. And that's exactly what the language of Scripture is speaking of. It wasn't just a marshy reed that was overcoming the army of Pharaoh there. It was the <laughs> destructive right. powers of the water that were doing that. The other part of this is, is, is the place, the, the left branch or the right, is it to the west on the western side of the Sinai Peninsula or to the east. Typically, I think most um, passages or most study Bibles will point to the left, to the west side, that's certainly closer to Egypt. Mm -hmm. I'm more convinced that it's on the right side. Uh, On the right side is where Midian was, Mm -hmm. right? Midian is the place that Moses fled to, certainly further distance that is there, Mm. but there seems to be even some evidence that that was the place that God had led the people of Israel to cross the of the, the Sinai Peninsula to the Red Sea on the other side and then into Midian uh, where Moses' his father-in-law was a priest. Uh, so we can talk more about that, but I think that's the, the better location to see uh, the Red Sea crossing taking place.
0: It is interesting that non-believers weren't trying to say that the Israelites didn't leave and cross. They were just trying to explain away the power of God in the story. And so often, you know, because the Bible is not only the Word of God, it's a historical document that can be proven out. So they try to deny um, the way it happened. Not that it happened, but the way it happened. I've always found that interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, this just goes back to um, an argument against supernaturalism, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, to write and understand the Bible, we need to see that it is giving us a testimony of the supernatural character of God. Mm-hmm. Right. So even the ten plagues, oftentimes people are to say, Well see, if there was a pollution or if there was some kind of, you know, microbes that were in the water right there in the Nile, it would turn red and then because of that the frogs would die. And because the frogs would die, the f- the flea or the, yeah, you know, yeah. the flies would come. And you know, it just kinda goes on and on. it's like no, like there is God supernaturally intending these things, even bringing darkness mm. on the land in one place and not darkness on the other place. Yeah. For a long period of time to do that, and, and the firstborn son's dying. It's like by the time you get to the end, it's like there's no way that this can just be a natural event. Right. Right. right? Yes, God does use natural means to accomplish things. It was the water, which is a natural thing, the ocean being there. Right. However, God is supernaturally intending these things. So we need to remember the power of God in that.
0: That's right. He has control over his creation. So even though they're natural, he created the natural. Sure. You know, he created the waters. And absolutely. The, and the earth. So in Exodus 13, we also find these strange words in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Why is this fact included?
1: Yeah, so again, uh, it shows us the way in which uh, Moses is giving promises and fulfillment, right? So these words here are fulfilling what we find in Genesis chapter 50. Right? Genesis 50, verse 25 says, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here, mm-hmm. right? So his hope is in the fact that his, in a sense, Figuratively speaking, will be raised from the dead. Right. right, that his bones will be taken out of Egypt and brought into the Promised Land. Mm. Right. In fact, uh, Hebrews 11 says that this is the evidence of Joseph's faith. Right. There are lots of things that Hebrews 11 could kind of point back to Joseph, but it was the fact that he was trusting that his bones would be taken into the Promised Land is what you know the author of Hebrews highlights.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Um, so I think it just shows us the hope that we have for a physical resurrection uh, as well. Um, you know, in fact, I was reading just this week in uh, Psalm seventy-one. Uh, David, as he's thinking about the end of his life, uh, talks about this. He says in verse uh, twenty, speaking to God, "You have made me see many troubles and calamities. Um, you will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again." You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. Yeah. Right? Like that's the resurrection hope that David had. That's the resurrection hope that Joseph had. And indeed, this is the resurrection hope that all Christians have. Which, practically speaking, may inform why the Christian tradition has always buried the dead mm-hmm. and hasn't burned the dead. Mm. Right? Right. The person who is cremated certainly will be reconstituted on the last day and right, will be yeah. in glory like everyone else. But in a funeral where there is a burial, and there is a body, the bones that are put in the ground, it is a Christian testimony to our hope that one day, when that trumpet sounds, the earth will spring forth with life, and this person whose bones are in the ground will be raised from the dead. Right? I think too often we have a low view of the body. We don't think enough about the body. And yet, the scriptures teach us that our bodies matter. Uh, and in fact, here's an example of that right that though. He's dead and gone He cares about his bones right, Yeah. So he wants his bones to be in the place where God is
0: As Moses retells the events of the Exodus, there are a number of things going on In fact in Exodus 14 15 through 20. It is hard to tell who was leading Israel Let's read starting with verse 15. The Lord said to Moses. Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So who is leading the Exodus?
1: Yeah. I think it's just an interesting passage because the Lord is speaking to Moses. Right. Moses is lifting up the staff. The angel of the Lord is going in front of them. Right. And it seems as though all of those persons, God, Moses, the angel of the Lord, are at work to accomplish this salvation. Right. Right. So I think it's important to see that in the book of Exodus, God is the Savior, mm. right? But the way that God saves is always through means. Mm-hmm. And the means in particular that he uses is always a mediator, right? So we talked about this last time, why Moses seems to be more important than Aaron. Right, Because yeah. Moses is the chosen mediator to lead the people through the Red Sea and to the mountain of God. right? So he he raises up the staff that God has given to him in some sense to show the power that he has been given by God and in that way Moses does that and now the waters part. Mm -hmm. It's not because Moses is doing that but it's because God is working through Moses to accomplish these things and even as that happens the angel of the Lord is leading the way Mm -hmm. and if we understand the angel of the Lord to be a pre-incarnate Christ certainly that's the way that Jude seems to be speaking of Jesus, or the Lord leading the people out of uh, Exodus, then we see multiple um, ways that the one God is bringing salvation. Right. And just theologically, this helps us to see that when God saves us, He does so as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Then we read Ephesians chapter 1. We see praise being given to the Father because He has chosen His people in Christ before the foundation of the world. We see praise being given to the Son who comes and sheds his blood in order to bring forgiveness to the people of God. And we see praise to the Spirit who now seals the people who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, who are chosen by the Father. Right. Right? So, in theological terms, this is the inseparable operations of the triune God. Right. Right? In all that God does, all God is always at work. Yeah. It's not as though the Father creates the Son saves, and the Spirit sanctifies. Mm -hmm. No, The Father, the Son, and the Spirit create, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit save, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit sanctify. They do so each as their own personal um, attributes or properties will accomplish, right? Only the Son takes on human form. Mm. The Father is the one who chooses, He's the one who uh, calls, and yet He calls through the proclamation of the Word of Christ, and He does so by the Spirit. It's just helpful for us to see in a passage like this how it's once again giving us an image of what God is doing in the world and that the triune God is the one who is saving.
0: When Israel passes through the Red Sea, Moses sings a song. What should we learn from this?
1: Maybe we should memorize the song and and learn it as a song for worship. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just a glorious, glorious song just asking questions about who is like our God, who has done something like this. Uh, I think we can learn something about worship. Um, we praise God in response to His works. We respond to His, His word. Uh, and in that, we are a people who don't praise God and then God comes and responds to us, right. but rather God has worked and we respond to Him. Right. right so yeah. you can think about the competition between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal are doing all these things to get their God to come and to serve them. Elijah starts to mock them. Where is your God? Is he asleep? Is he in the bathroom? Where where is he? (laughs) That's not our worship. We're not worshiping God in order to pull him down. Mm -hmm. We are responding to God because of what he has done for us in Christ. I think we see that uh, here. I think we learned something about God's purposes. Uh, Look at verses 13 through 18. This is amazing uh, how this this song ends. He says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, there still is a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountains. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So we have to ask this. Like, did Moses say these words at the sea as he's washing or watching, you know, the army's uh, armor, you know, bobbing in the waves coming up on the shore? Well, he's certainly saying things that are gonna happen later with Israel. Right, yeah. He's talking about the mountain that the people of Israel are gonna go into the promised land. Right. Right? So Maybe he is, and he's prophesying of the things that are to come. Or maybe he includes some of these words later and situates them there. Mm-hmm. However, we see it happening, the end result is that God has saved them, not just to save them from their place in slavery and in sin in Egypt, but he saved them to bring them to his place. Right. Right? To reign over them in grace and glory so that these people would come and abide in his sanctuary. Right? So this is always the goal that we find in Exodus. Right? Yeah. The goal of Exodus is that the people of God would be redeemed and brought into God's presence. We see that at Mount Sinai. But Mount Sinai is on the way to Mount Zion. Mm. right? And so here we can see that the purposes of God are revealed in this song. Another thing we see is just how the Bible works. right? So Exodus 12-14 through 14 talk about the Passover leading into the Red Sea. And it's very much just a historical account Now we come to poetry, Mm. now we come to song, right? right. And the hearts of God's people need to be instructed by prose and propositions, and the hearts of God's people need to sing, Mm. and they need poetry, right? This comes again in a place like Judges 4 and 5, where we have the history of Deborah and Barak coming and defeating King Sisera, but then chapter 5 puts it in song, right? So it is with us, right? Right. We need the teaching of God's word and we need to sing. And maybe what's wonderful about this too is how Moses leads here in song, but then he's joined by Miriam. Right? So it's the men and the women of God together giving praise to the Lord.
0: The story of Israel's Exodus continues in chapters sixteen and eighteen, or sixteen through eighteen, leading Israel to Sinai. Is there anything else we should learn?
1: Definitely is. Right, just kind of unpack these verses or unpack these chapters together. I mean, chapter 16 speaks about how God begins to lead the people of Israel uh, through the wilderness on the way to Sinai. Uh, they begin to grumble, uh, they begin to be hungry, they begin to be thirsty, yet God provides for them. This manna from heaven it is given to them. Again, uh, like we will see when we read this in light of things in the New Testament. This manna from heaven is also a type of the way that God will feed his people later. Right. right. Jesus comes and he speaks about this event and then he says that he is the bread of life. Mm. Right? So today we don't live on this manna, but we live on manna from heaven that is given to us in Jesus Christ.
0: It all ties together. Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. In chapter 17, we also see that they are threatened uh, by the Amalekites. Mm-hmm. They are going to play a role in the history of Israel. Especially, We will see that again um, with Samuel and his command to kill the Amalekites. But even before that in chapter 17, we see that Moses is instructed to strike the rock and water is to come out. Right? Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 10 and says that this rock is Christ. Yeah. Right. So again, God is with them, the full triune God is with them and is preparing the way for us to understand how God is preparing the way. Chapter 18, uh, we have Jethro, or Raoul, who is fa- uh, Moses' father-in-law, and he gives them instructions for how they are to organize themselves and to how Moses cannot do all these things on his own. And this structure is kind of preparing the way for what's going to happen at Sinai, right, where God himself will again begin to give instructions to the people of Israel for how the priesthood is to work and how God's people are able to have their needs met through the mediating roles of the priests. So preparing the way for that. Uh, so it's just amazing to see how there's no lost word in these chapters, yeah. right? Yeah. that they fit together in the context of Exodus, in this case they're preparing the way now for the people of Israel to meet God at Sinai in chapter 19, um, but they are also a part of God's larger work in all the Bible, and there are many things that we can see in these verses that will not have their full understanding until we come to Christ doesn't mean that Christ later adds to the meaning here, but rather we see how the shadow of Christ is found in these verses and it leads us to him when we have the full revelation in the New Testament.
0: This concludes our discussion of the Old Testament portion of our reading plan. As you follow along with your reading plan, if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to discuss, please send them to emmaus at obc.org. You may hear a response in an upcoming episode.
1: Via Emmaus is a podcast of Ocaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.